Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and tonight I have the wildest true war story that I've ever heard, titled The Convoy to Hell. I sourced a lot of this information from John Krakauer's excellent book, Where Men Win Glory. Krakauer's book is about Pat Tillman's life. Tillman was an NFL football player who walked away from a large football contract to become an Army Ranger. Pat Tillman's story is amazing, but that's not the story I have for you tonight. In Krakauer's book, he also detailed a fierce battle that took place in Nazaria, Iraq. But it wasn't just a fierce battle. There was much, much more to the story. On March 23, 2003, Private Jessica Lynch traveled north on Highway 8, an Iraqi freeway. She was part of a convoy from the Army's 507 Maintenance Company. The surrounding desert was flat and dark before dawn. Including Jessica, there were 33 soldiers and 18 vehicles in the convoy. They were headed to support a Patriot anti-missile battery. These soldiers were mostly cooks, mechanics, and supply clerks. The vehicles in the convoy included a few Humvees escorting heavy trucks towing trailers. Captain King led the convoy in a Humvee. At approximately 6 a.m., Captain King was exhausted and he missed a turn on their assigned directions. The turn would have kept them on Highway 8, which would have taken them around Nazaria. Instead, they drove directly into the city on a four-lane boulevard. The barren desert gave way to palm groves and greenery. A mile after they missed their turn, they passed Iraqi T-55 tanks along the roadside, but the convoy didn't notice them in the dark. A half mile further, they crossed a bridge over the Euphrates River once they crossed the river, they were in the heart of Nazaria, a heavily populated city of about 500,000 people that included 5,000 Iraqi soldiers and 800 Fedayeen militia fighters. Nazaria was a military city. The citizens had been anticipating an invasion by the Americans. They were ready with tanks, artillery, and soldiers positioned in strategic places to repel the invasion. But when Private Lynch's convoy motored into the city, the Iraqis were stunned. They expected infantry soldiers and tanks. They didn't expect a lightly armored convoy driven by men and women. The Iraqis held their fire and watched in disbelief as the convoy drove deeper into enemy territory. Shortly after crossing the Euphrates River, they passed an Iraqi military checkpoint with armed soldiers. The soldiers smiled and waved. Despite this, the convoy motored deeper into Nazaria. They continued north for another three miles without any issues. They crossed a bridge over the Saddam Canal and drove another mile past the northern edge of Nazaria. At this point, Captain King stopped the convoy and consulted his GPS. He realized that they were way off course. He figured out that they'd made a wrong turn about an hour earlier. He determined that the convoy would need to reverse course and retrace their route back to the intersection where they'd gotten off course. King ordered the convoy to turn around and he told his soldiers to ready their weapons. On the return trip through Nazaria, the Iraqis were no longer stunned in disbelief and they started to shoot at the trucks. Some of the U.S. soldiers panicked. Many of their weapons jammed since they had not been properly maintained in the dusty desert. Captain King got lost on the unfamiliar streets under a hail of gunfire. One truck was disabled by enemy gunfire. Two other trucks got stuck in the soft sand. Sergeant Donald Walters, who had been riding in the disabled truck, was accidentally left behind. He was taken prisoner 
by the Fedayeen and killed. News of the mostly defenseless and confused American convoy spread throughout the city, and the Fedayeen militia fighters circled like sharks with blood in the water. Under heavy attack, the convoy split. Vehicles were separated in the confusion and swirling dust. Two American soldiers were shot. Private Jessica Lynch and four other soldiers were in a Humvee towing a trailer near the rear of the scattered convoy. In front of Lynch's Humvee was a five-ton truck towing a flatbed trailer driven by specialist Edgar Hernandez. Lynch's Humvee and Hernandez's five-ton truck drove south down a street that Marines would name Ambush Alley. They were cut off from the rest of the convoy. As they sped down Ambush Alley, the Fedayeen shot at them with AK-47s and rocket-propelled grenades, or RPGs. Despite the aggressive attack, they made it through Ambush Alley. At around 7.20 a.m., they sped back over the bridge and the Euphrates River. They were nearly home free when Specialist Hernandez swerved on the shoulder to avoid hitting an Iraqi dump truck that had been parked there to block the convoy from escaping. When Hernandez swerved, his trailer jackknifed and Lynch's Humvee slammed into the trailer at 50 miles per hour. Private Lynch was in one of the rear seats. Her best friend, Private Lori Paestawa, was driving. Private Lynch and Private Paestawa were knocked unconscious in the crash. They were taken by the Iraqis to the Taikar Military Hospital, where Private Paestawa died from her injuries, becoming the first female U.S. soldier to die in the Iraq War, and the first Native American woman to die in U.S. military combat. The other three Humvee passengers died in the crash or shortly after it. A few hours later, an Iraqi military ambulance took Lynch to Saddam Hussein General Hospital, which was a civilian hospital nearby. In total, 11 soldiers from the 507 Maintenance Company died and seven were captured. As the sun rose that morning on March 23, 2003, Hundreds of U.S. Marines readied themselves to invade Nazaria. When they neared the bridge over the Euphrates that the convoy had crossed twice, Iraqi forces fired with artillery, AK-47s, and mortars. In the middle of this battle, an Army Humvee sped toward the Marines, the vehicle full of bullet holes and riding on flaming tires. The Humvee slammed on the brakes as it reached the Marines and Captain Troy King jumped out, appearing extremely stressed. He yelled about his convoy and the losses they'd suffered. Major Bill Peebles, the commander of the tank column leading the Marines into Nazaria, was confused. No Army units were supposed to precede the Marines. The Marines were supposed to be the tip of the spear, so to speak. Captain King finally explained that most of his soldiers remained behind, some dead, some pinned down by enemy fire. Major Peebles led his tanks off to look for survivors. The Marine tanks found several U.S. trucks that were on fire and shot full of bullet holes. They found 10 Army soldiers hiding in a ditch still taking fire. The Marines rescued the soldiers and turned around their tanks. The tank column left Nazaria to deliver the wounded soldiers from the maintenance convoy to a secure location for medical attention. Without all their tanks, 200 Marines riding in three Humvees, a few tanks, and a dozen amphibious assault vehicles, also known as Amtraks, drove north to the bridge over the Euphrates. They were able to cross without resistance, so they continued to their next objective, which was a second bridge on the northern edge of Nazaria over the Saddam Canal. The quickest route to the bridge would take them through Ambush Alley, the same route taken by the maintenance convoy. Wanting to avoid Ambush Alley, they decided to take a less direct route coming from the east. 
After they crossed the Euphrates River, they turned right, leaving the paved road for a salt flat that would take them to Saddam Canal, but would also avoid Ambush Alley. Unfortunately, the Marines didn't realize that the salt flat was actually a swamp where the sewage from the city collected under a crusted layer of sun-baked mud. Two Marine tanks broke through the crust and sunk four feet into foul-smelling quicksand. The more the tanks spun their treads, the deeper they sunk into the muck. Then, one of the Amtraks plunged into the sewage sand, then another. In minutes, three tanks, three Humvees, and three Amtraks were stuck in the sewage. One of the Amtraks functioned as the mobile command post for Lieutenant Colonel Rick Grabowski, the officer who was commanding the assault. His vehicle was stuck beneath an overhead power line, which interfered with his radio transmissions, making it difficult to communicate with headquarters or his Marines. Once they were stuck in the muck, Iraqi fighters began shooting at the Marines from the surrounding rooftops. Grabowski ordered his men to exit their vehicles and form a defensive perimeter. Many of these men were young Marines with no combat experience. Grabowski was having a rough day. He had already been chewed out for the slow pace of their assault by General Rich Natonsky. Natonsky said, I need you to effing get up there and seize those bridges. Additionally, there were still 12 soldiers missing from the maintenance convoy, and the Marines were supposed to look for them on the way to the bridges. The war was supposed to be over very fast. Bush, Cheney, and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld wanted a quick victory, so the generals pushed for speed. Shortly past noon, Grabowski and the Bravo Company Marines were still stuck in the sewage muck on the eastern edge of Nazaria. Meanwhile, the Charlie Company Marines moved north over the Euphrates River Bridge. They were supposed to connect with Bravo Company and follow them to the Saddam Canal Bridge, but they didn't see Bravo Company and couldn't reach them on the radio. The commander of Charlie Company, Captain Dan Whitnam, figured Bravo Company had gone ahead, so Whitnam ordered his men to proceed north directly through Ambush Alley and ultimately to hopefully connect with Bravo Company at the Saddam Canal Bridge. The commander of the lead Amtrak, Sergeant William Schaefer, was concerned as they were supposed to be led by tanks, but the tanks that had been diverted to rescue the survivors of the maintenance convoy hadn't returned yet. But the Marines pushed forward, despite the danger as the mission took precedence, and speed was the top priority from the Bush administration and the generals. Author John Krakauer mentioned this to a former army officer who had been in Iraq, and he denied that speed was a problem. He said that the problem was that the Marines weren't properly equipped for the task with their outdated communications and amphibious vehicles. But he said that it was political. The top brass in the Marine Corps wanted a piece of the action. With Sergeant Schaefer's Amtrak out in front, he led Charlie Company and their 11 Amtraks and three Humvees north toward Saddam Canal Bridge. Amtraks are watertight, tube-like structures that can use propellers to cross open water to move troops from ships to beachheads. Amtraks are 26 feet long with a roof-mounted gun turret and belted treads like a tank. But Amtraks have very light aluminum armor that is easily breached by RPGs. This is why the tanks were supposed to lead the way. But after being diverted to rescue soldiers from the maintenance convoy, the tanks were low on fuel. When Major Peebles and his platoon of tanks reached the refueling place, the pumps were broken, so they had to use a siphon, making the refueling process take 40 minutes per tank. So Charlie Company was stuck without tanks, leading the charge into Ambush Alley. Weirdly, 
Nobody knew that Nazaria was a major military base for Iraqi soldiers and militia. Not the generals, the White House, or the CIA, and definitely not the Marines on the ground. They had been told that taking the bridges in Nazaria would be a cakewalk. They thought, with the mostly Shiite Muslim population who hated Saddam, that they would be greeted with little to no resistance. Maybe the people of Nazaria remembered what had happened on February 15, 1991, during the first Gulf War, when the elder President George Bush broadcasted a speech on Voice of America asking the Shia of Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein. Nine days later, the CIA made a similar broadcast over the Voice of Free Iraq radio station, insinuating that the U.S. would support an uprising against Saddam. At the beginning of March, the Shiite residents of Nazaria did exactly that, defeating the Ba'athist regime of the city that had been loyal to Saddam. But after defeating Saddam, the U.S. and the Coalition of Allies signed an agreement with Saddam, which allowed the dictator to retain power and to even keep his helicopter gunships. With Saddam being defeated, the U.S. no longer needed the Shia. The U.S. wanted a Shia-controlled Iraq even less than Saddam, given the close religious ties that the Shia hold with Iran. As the Shiite rebellion continued, Saddam's Republican Guard crushed the Shia through southern Iraq and Nazaria. Shia bodies were dumped in mass graves around Nazaria, while U.S. forces stood by and did nothing. It seems likely that 12 years later, when Bush's son invaded their city, the Shia of Nazaria didn't trust the Americans. It's likely that many still had animosity. The evidence for this is that the citizens shot at the Marines. Local women and children ran into the streets to stop the Marines from returning fire. According to Lieutenant Colonel Grabowski, they were smiling and waving, but they knew exactly what they were doing. At first, the Marines tried to hold their fire, but as the shooting intensified, they returned fire, their own survival taking precedent over the possible civilian casualties. The Charlie Company Marines fought fiercely as they motored down Ambush Alley at 30 miles per hour. Sergeant Schaefer and the lead Amtrak ripped Fedayeen fighters to shreds with the 50 caliber machine gun mounted in the turret. His driver said pieces of people were all over the street just before Saddam Canal Bridge, an Amtrak near the rear of the convoy, driven by Sergeant Michael Bitts, was hit with two RPGs. The blasts severely injured five Marines and set the Amtrak ablaze. But they couldn't stop where they were, so the vehicle's commander, 2nd Lieutenant Michael Seeley, pounded on Bitts' helmet and yelled, Go, go, go! They were able to cross the bridge and drive another hundred yards before the engine stopped working. The Marines of Charlie Company had driven into a dangerous cul-de-sac. Several hundred Fedayeen fighters and Iraqi army soldiers surrounded them in fortified positions. The Marines were attacked with a barrage of heavy and light weapons. The Amtraks halted and the Marines exited their lightly armored aluminum vehicles. They rushed for cover in the surrounding area, but found little. Bits, Schaefer, and a few others helped to remove the wounded and blood-soaked Marines from the flaming Amtrak before the ammunition inside exploded. They loaded the wounded into another Amtrak designated as a medevac. At the same time, the Marines lobbed mortar rounds at the enemy. They worked so quickly that the mortar tubes glowed from the heat. The Marines tried to get a medevac helicopter, but there was too much enemy fire to land safely. The RPGs continued, but luckily, a lot of them didn't detonate. Still, Charlie Company was in a desperate fight for their lives. Those tanks would have given them the advantage, but they were still not there. Air support from a Cobra helicopter would have been a great help too, 
but Charlie Company didn't have a forward air controller or a UHF radio. They needed both to call in an airstrike. First Sergeant Jose Hanau of Charlie Company went to check on the mortar crews. Staff Sergeant Philip Jordan pumped shells into the mortar tubes as fast as he could. He calmly said, we're in a shit sandwich. Jose Hanau agreed and hurried off to tend to the wounded men who yelled for him from about 70 yards away. Once he'd made it halfway, a massive explosion came from where he'd just been. The explosion killed Philip Jordan and two others and severely wounded three more. Then, another large blast occurred, killing another soldier. Hundreds of bullets sprayed the earth, followed by a screeching noise. One Marine said it sounded like a buzzsaw. Only one Marine knew what was attacking them. Second Lieutenant Michael Seeley knew exactly what it was. He had been awarded a bronze star and a purple heart in 1991 during the first war with Iraq and he'd been attacked by the same type of jet then. He knew exactly what they sounded like. The A-10 Warthog was designed to attack tanks. They were mistakenly being attacked by the U.S. Air Force. A few miles south of Charlie Company, Alpha and Bravo companies were also fighting for their lives. Alpha and Bravo companies had no idea about Charlie Company's desperate situation because radio communications had degenerated to the point of worthlessness. The main reason the radios didn't work was that overexcited Marines had accidentally thumbed the talk buttons on their microphones even when they weren't talking. This is known as hot miking, and it overloaded the entire network. Many of Bravo Company's vehicles were still stuck in sewage muck, including Lieutenant Colonel Grabowski's mobile command Amtrak. Grabowski hopped in another vehicle with a handful of vehicles that had avoided the sludge. The battalion air officer, Captain A.J. Green, stayed behind in the immobile command Amtrak. The immobile vehicles continued receiving gunfire and RPG fire from the surrounding rooftops. Captain Green was supposed to supervise the three forward air controllers of the battalion. The forward air controllers were charged with using their UHF radios to contact any aircraft in the vicinity, then telling them where to strike. But Green's radios only worked sporadically. At around 1.20 p.m., Captain Green got a call through to one of the forward air controllers, Captain Dennis Santer, who was in an Amtrak a few hundred yards north of Green. Green said, I need you to get on guard and get any air support you can. Then Green's radio went dead and it never came back. When Green mentioned guard, he was referring to a rarely used channel for emergencies. So Santer got on the guard channel and requested air support. He received a call back from two A-10 Warthogs. To communicate with the Warthogs, Santer had to stand atop the Amtrak, vulnerable to enemy fire, and balancing his bulky UHF radio on the roof. Santer was a skilled air controller, but because he couldn't talk to Green or Grabowski, he had to make some decisions without all the important information. Santer believed that the enemy was mostly north of Saddam Canal Bridge. He worried that the enemy was sending reinforcements to attack Bravo Company. So Santer told the Warthog pilots to check the area north of the canal and to tell him what they saw. The Warthog pilots told Santer that they saw nine enemy trucks massing just north of Saddam Canal Bridge. This was exactly what Captain Santer was worried about. The Warthog pilots observed this at a height of 15,000 feet through binoculars. While observing, they saw Marine Cobra helicopters flying near the trucks. One of the trucks was on fire, 
indicating that it had been hit by the Cobra helicopter. They didn't know that the burning truck was actually Charlie Company's Amtrak, which had been hit by Iraqi RPGs and had stopped north of Saddam Canal Bridge. The original battle plan called for Bravo Company to lead the assault on Saddam Canal Bridge, which led Santerre to assume Charlie Company was still behind Bravo Company, probably stuck in the muck too. Santerre checked with Bravo Company commander Captain Tim Newland, who confirmed that Bravo Company was in front and no Marines had gone north of Saddam Canal. So Santerre assured the Warthog pilots that no friendlies were beyond the canal. At 1.40 p.m., Santerre told them they had permission to engage the targets north of the canal. A few minutes before this, the commander of Charlie Company, Dan Whitnam, got a brief call through to Grabowski, telling him that they'd taken Saddam Canal Bridge. Grabowski was thrilled that they had moved so quickly. Unfortunately, because of the radio gridlock, Santerre didn't know about Charlie Company's success and location beyond the Saddam Canal Bridge. Two weeks earlier, Grabowski had issued a written order that stated that they would only allow forward air controllers to give attack orders if the controller could see the aircraft and the target with their own eyes. Santerre could see the Warthogs occasionally, but he could not see the targets. Santerre was in violation of Grabowski's orders, and he knew it. He said later to the Friendly Fire Investigation Board, I believe my company was minutes away from the anvil of a mechanized ambush. I felt if I did not act, Marines would die. The A-10 Warthogs made eight passes over Charlie Company, dropping eight 500-pound bombs, firing three missiles, as well as consistent strafing by the Gatlin-style autocannon mounted in the nose of each aircraft. Of the ordnance deployed, the missiles caused the most casualties, but it was the Avenger 30mm hydraulically driven 7-barrel Gatlin-style cannon that the Marines feared the most. The Avenger fired Red Bull can-sized bullets milled from depleted uranium that were capable of piercing steel armor on tanks and firing at a rate of 65 rounds per second. The large bullets tore through the light armor of the Amtraks like a hot knife through butter. A few seconds after the hellfire of bullets rained down on the Marines, the terrifying screech from the rotating barrels that had delivered the bullets could be heard. It was this unique noise that alerted Lieutenant Seeley that they were under friendly fire attack. Charlie Company Marines shot off colored cluster flares and raised an American flag, but it was futile. When the Warthogs were finished, Santerre called them on the radio and said, Hey, you're putting smiles on the guys' faces down here. Then, Santerre sent the Warthogs north to check a suspected enemy compound. But the Warthogs weren't done. They found nothing in regard to the enemy compound, but on their way back, they saw Amtraks moving quickly south towards Saddam Canal Bridge. One of the pilots radioed Santerre and said, Hey, you've got vehicles from the northern target sector progressing into the city. Those vehicles must not get into the city, Santerre replied. The three Amtraks were Marines from Charlie Company trying to evacuate their injured. Amtrak C-208 was the first vehicle across the bridge. It was driven by Lance Corporal Noel Trevino and commanded by Corporal Nick Elliott. In the rear troop compartment were boxes of mortar rounds and 10 Marines, some of them badly injured. The C-208 Amtrak was followed by C-201 and C-206. As the Amtraks crossed the bridge at 40 miles per hour, one of the Warthogs attacked with its Avenger cannon, hitting all three Amtraks, but not stopping any of them. The Warthog turned around and made another run 
shooting a missile, but it missed. Then, the second Warthog swooped in for the attack, firing a missile that struck the C-208 Amtrak on the left side of the troop compartment that was carrying 10 men and mortar rounds. The driver of Amtrak C-201, Edward Castleberry, saw a white flash and then C-208 flew a foot and a half off the ground. He saw the side blow out and everyone in back was blown out with the blast. Blood splattered his windshield. Body parts flew through the air haphazardly. Castleberry had to swerve his Amtrak right then left to avoid the flaming wreckage of C-208. But when he tried to swerve left to stay on the road, the steering didn't respond. During the Warthog strafing runs, the Amtrak's transmission oil cooler had been hit with one of those massive bullets and the hydraulic fluid leaked out, causing the steering to fail. Amtrak C-201 crashed into a telephone pole near a cinder block house. Castleberry and his fellow Marines inside Amtrak C-201 exited the vehicle and ran for the house while under fire from the Iraqis across the street. The ten men in the troop compartment of Amtrak C-208 were all dead. But there was an aluminum bulkhead between the front seats and the rear troop compartment so Corporal Elliott and Lance Corporal Trevino were shielded from the worst of the blast. Trevino had been temporarily blinded. Elliott's face was severely burned, his lungs had been seared, and shrapnel tore a large chunk of flesh from his leg. They crawled out of the flaming Amtrak as the boxes of mortar rounds began to explode from the heat. Elliott and Trevino helped each other stagger 70 yards down Ambush Alley to the house where the Marines from Amtrak C-201 had taken cover. One of the Warthogs turned around and locked in on the final functional Amtrak. C-206 was 250 yards south of Saddam Canal Bridge, rushing through Ambush Alley. The Warthog pilot locked on C-206 with his last remaining missile and fired. The missile detonated as it clipped the rear of the Amtrak. The blast blew open the rear ramp and caused part of the roof to collapse on the Marines inside. The roof killed injured Sergeant Michael Bitts and Lance Corporal Thomas Slocum. Amtrak C-206 was on fire with black smoke coming from the back end and the rear hatch dragging on the asphalt causing sparks, but it was still moving south. The vehicle finally shuddered and broke down near the Euphrates River, close to where the Alpha Company Marines were in a firefight with the Iraqis. Once the Amtrak stopped, the Iraqis began to fire at the vehicle. Despite the heavy gunfire, Marines from Alpha Company rushed to the Amtrak to help the men inside, ultimately saving six Marines. The A-10 Warthogs weren't done though. They searched for more targets, finding an intact parked Amtrak C-204. Just before firing, Santer shouted into the radio, Check fire! The pilot thankfully didn't fire. Santer explained to the pilot that they might have hit their own men, but they weren't sure. Lieutenant Michael Seeley, the one with experiences of warthog strafing in the first Gulf War, had finally gotten a radio call through to Grabowski. According to Seeley, after he told Grabowski that they were taking fire from the warthogs, it took several excruciating minutes for the barrage to stop. Shortly after the warthog attack ended, two of the tanks that had been diverted to rescue the survivors of the Army maintenance convoy finally appeared. This turned the tide of the firefight in favor of Charlie Company. By the end of the day, the firefights had ended and the Marines held both the important bridges of Nazaria, but it had cost them dearly. Eighteen Marines had died, 
17 of them killed by friendly fire. Another 17 were injured. 29 U.S. soldiers died in Nazaria that day. 11 Army soldiers from Jessica Lynch's Army Maintenance Convoy and 18 Marines. Jessica Lynch and five others had been captured. By the end of the day, Baghdad television showed footage of several dead bodies from the maintenance convoy. This was a PR disaster for U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM. CENTCOM did their best to suppress the bad news, and they were mostly successful. At CENTCOM's daily news briefing, General Vincent Brooks said that the Iraqis pretended to surrender, but then they attacked and the Marines suffered casualties. The next day, the Associated Press and Fox News reported it like this, quoting General John Abizaid, Marines in Nazaria encountered Iraqi troops who appeared to be surrendering. Instead, they attacked. The Americans triumphed, knocking out eight tanks, some anti-aircraft batteries, some artillery and infantry. But victory came at a cost, as many as nine dead and an undisclosed number of wounded. On March 28, 2003, General Tommy Franks ordered an investigation into what caused the casualties in Nazaria. Reporters asked questions, and Army officials said that there was a thorough investigation underway, but they offered no details. The investigation took a year to complete, but it was quite incomplete. Crucial eyewitnesses were not interviewed, videos from the A-10 warthogs mysteriously disappeared, the investigation did not acknowledge that any of the deaths were friendly fire, and only one of the wounded was because of friendly fire. Within days after the battle in Nazaria, the U.S. military knew from several Iraqi sources that Private Jessica Lynch was being held at Saddam Hussein General Hospital. The husband of the nurse caring for Lynch, a lawyer named Mohammed Oday al-Rahif, told Marines manning a checkpoint outside of the city that he had spoken with Lynch at her bedside. The Marines asked Mohammed to gather more information. He went back twice and gave the Marines detailed maps of the hospital building and Lynch's exact location in the hospital. There was military presence at the civilian hospital initially, but Iraqi fighters were largely gone by the end of March. The staff at the hospital treated Private Lynch well. According to one of the doctors caring for Lynch, hospital staff had donated their own blood to her. On March 30th, this doctor put Private Lynch in an ambulance and instructed the driver to drop her off at the nearest American military checkpoint. But Marines shot at the ambulance, causing it and Private Lynch to return to the hospital. Ironically, Private Lynch's rescue was already set for March 31st. CENTCOM and the Coalition of the Willing had suffered several setbacks on March 23rd and in the days after. This could potentially destroy the narrative set by the Bush administration that the Iraq war would result in a quick and easy victory. In a separate incident on March 23rd, the U.S. Army accidentally shot down a British Royal Air Force bomber. At night on March 24th, an Abrams tank fell off a bridge into the Euphrates River, drowning the crew inside. On March 26th, another friendly fire incident between two Marine units resulted in 37 wounded. On March 27th, a U.S. A-10 Warthog attacked a British convoy near Basra, killing one British soldier and injuring three others. After this week filled with disasters, CENTCOM was desperate for good news. Jessica Lynch was exactly what they needed. The perfect piece of PR propaganda. On March 30th, Pat Tillman, an infantryman from the 2nd Ranger Battalion and a former NFL football player, wrote in his journal, 
I do believe this to be a big public relations stunt. I wish everyone in trouble to be rescued, but sending this many folks in for a single low-ranking soldier screams of a media blitz. In any case, I'm glad to be able to do my part, and I hope we bring her home safe. Five other soldiers from Lynch's convoy were being held captive at the time, but little was being done to find and rescue them, certainly not as much as Jessica Lynch. Using Muhammad's information, the U.S. military planned an operation to rescue Jessica Lynch on March 31st. On the day, the mission was postponed for 24 hours. Congressman Henry Waxman later alleged that this delay was to secure a special operations video crew so the rescue could be broadcast to the world. The rescue team encountered gunfire as they approached the hospital in six helicopters, but the gunfire was light and no helicopters or soldiers were hit. At midnight, the special ops team breached the hospital, took Lynch from her bed and rushed her out of the hospital on a stretcher to a waiting Black Hawk helicopter. They did not encounter any resistance inside the hospital. Within three hours, a five-minute video of the rescue was edited for dramatic effect and given to the media. Jessica Lynch's story was published on the front page of the Washington Post on April 3rd with the headline, She Was Fighting to the Death. The story quoted a U.S. official stating that Private Lynch fought fiercely and shot several enemy soldiers, firing her weapon until she ran out of ammunition. She continued firing after she sustained several gunshot wounds and watched several American soldiers die around her. She was fighting to the death. She did not want to be taken alive. The official also stated that Lynch was stabbed when Iraqi forces closed in on her position and that the initial intelligence reports said she was stabbed to death. The Washington Post quoted an anonymous military officer who was briefed on the operation. He said, there was shooting going in, there was some shooting going out, it was not intensive. There was no shooting in the hospital, but it was hairy because no one knew what to expect. The officer also said that the special operations team found what looked like a torture chamber in the basement with batteries and metal prods. With the Washington Post article and the dramatic video, Jessica Lynch's rescue was all over the news for weeks. Further details of Jessica Lynch's story provided by military public affairs officers created compelling and exciting media. According to these public affairs officers, Lynch had been tortured and raped in addition to being shot and stabbed before finally being rescued from her evil captors by special ops soldiers. The rescue of Private Lynch spawned 600 stories across every form of media, including a quickly written book that hit number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list and also a made-for-TV movie titled Saving Jessica Lynch. Over the following years, it was discovered that much of these details were embellished or were complete fiction. In truth, Lynch's rifle had jammed, so she never fired a single round. Her injuries were in fact serious and life-threatening, but they were the result of the accident with Specialist Hernandez's trailer. Private Lynch was never shot, stabbed, tortured, or raped. After she was transferred to Saddam Hussein Hospital, her captors treated her with good care, and the special ops team met little resistance when rescuing her. Jessica Lynch never lied about this. This manufactured story came from anonymous military and government sources. In fact, the story likely came from the very top of the U.S. government. The man who had arranged for the media to interview the anonymous sources was Jim Wilkinson. He was the director of strategic communications for General Tommy Franks, the commander of all U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Jim Wilkinson was President George W. Bush's man at the U.S. Central Command headquarters in Qatar, carefully shaping the propaganda handed to the press in regard to the war. It was Jim Wilkinson who gave the propaganda to the Washington Post. Just before the Iraq War, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, and others in the administration sold the war as something that would be quick and easy, that U.S. soldiers would be warmly welcomed and greeted as liberators by the Iraqi people. For the first three days of the Iraq War, the Bush administration was right. The U.S. military raced north through Iraq with little resistance. The only thing that slowed them down was dealing with the surrendering Iraqis. The ferocious counterattack at Nazaria on day four of the war caught the Marines completely by surprise. Prior to the invasion, the residents of Nazaria were afraid of the mighty U.S. military. But when they found out that the mighty U.S. military was being led by a poorly armed maintenance convoy, the Iraqis changed their perspective. According to a captured Iraqi officer, the Iraqis thought differently when the Americans of the maintenance convoy didn't fight back, and they fled. The Iraqis were emboldened by this show of weakness. The tribal leaders joined the fight, figuring that they wanted to be on the winning side. So when the Marines showed up, the Iraqis were primed and confident for the fight, and many more Iraqis showed up to fight because they thought they would win. A simple wrong turn started this chain reaction of deadly events in Nazaria, Iraq. That was Convoy to Hell. If you want more information about the Battle of Nazaria, I highly recommend John Krakauer's excellent book, Where Men Win Glory. Thank you so much for listening and watching Thriller Vault. I hope you all come back next week. 